Hello and welcome to APO's monthly podcast with me, Andrew Taylor. I'm the music director of APO and every month I have a couple of APO members join me for a bit of a chat about what it is to be a member of APO and all the latest news. And this month I have two committee members joining me in the form of Aoife, who is our treasurer, and Michael, who is a kind of jack of all trades, really. We'll leave him to tell us what he does. Um, first of all, let's get the basics out of the way. How long have you both been members of APO and what are your instruments? Hi, I'm Aoife. Um, so I've been in APO for, um, I'm going to say like four years, something like four years. Yes. Um, I, know I, was, I only started APO because I turned up at an event as Michael's plus one and then I got strung armed into uh, beefing up the violin section for something a few weeks later. So um, yeah, I'm a violinist. I'm also an oboist, a singer and a pianist. Um, but for APO purposes, I, I play the violin. That's me. So that that is a, a heck of a leap, isn't it? Going from four years ago, turning up as Michael's plus one to being treasurer of APO. Yeah, an officer of the orchestra, a, a, a trustee in charity commission terms and so on. How on earth did we manage to, to do that job on you? <laughs> I was like, I ask myself every day. <laughs> and why never have a big part of the play, I think. <laughs> yes. Um, gosh, well, I mean, so the first event I did, I think, was one of the... It was the first station event, isn't it? Was that it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so um, I actually can't... What did we play? I can't remember. I remember turning up, I'd just passed my driving test and I turned up to my first ever APO rehearsal having passed my driving test that day, super giddy, um, and then had to basically remember how to play the violin. <laughs> so I didn't really play it much at college, I just played the oboe at college. Um, and everyone was just so super friendly. I sat next to um, Katie Hepworth and she was just great and so, so lovely and friendly. Everyone welcomed me in. Um, the event was great fun, it was something completely different. Um, it also wasn't 10,000 rehearsals every single week for a million months before we got to do something, so that was great. Um, and yeah, out of college it was it was fantastic because I didn't have access to the level of music making that I would have done there, I guess. So it was a great introduction to the sort of adult amateur scene I guess so from there I got more and more involved I've done some concert managing sort of semi-professional professionally in London so then I decided that I'd kind of help out with that and then last year I just felt bad that Emily had had to keep standing in to be treasurer so it was a spare at the moment decision <laughs> in the AGM to say yeah yeah okay yeah I'll, I'll, I'll do some treasuring I'll look after some treasure uh, yeah, so it was just a gradual creep. So that event at the station was, um, the, as you say, the first event we did at Reading Station, I think it was back in 2017, so that stacks up with the four years, and that was Route to the River, Schumann at the station. So a couple of Schumann symphonies, the third, the Rhenish, and the, um, the fourth. Missions as well, including one by Derry Lewis that we talked about on the last podcast, and uh, one by Alice Knight, who um, 
we'll talk about in a minute. It was part of our dress up to stay in event that happened recently, which we'll come back to. But but Michael, I shouldn't leave you out of the uh, the detail, as it were. Uh, Aoife mentioned she plays the oboe. Of course, some people might know I play the oboe, and we are staging a bit of an oboe takeover because that has been your role in APA for how many years now? Well, exactly. What's so, staging an oboe takeover? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I try to bring as many as I can. Um, so I auditioned in October um, of 2011, believe it or not. No, no. Seriously, that long ago? I know, I moved to England. Um, and actually, um, people may know Caroline Brett, the um, one of the flautists who's been in APO for a very, very long time. Her and her husband told me plays French horn. And I moved to Oxford and I was just trying to get to play somewhere. And I was stepping um, as an orchestra in Abingdon and um, because their Prince Louis was, was off for a night. So at the end of the rehearsal, Caroline, in a very straightforward fashion, said, you're good, audition for him. So I was given a piece of paper with your number on it. I had no idea who you were or indeed who the orchestra were. Um, so I think I rang up, we had a little chat. Um, I went to Bluecoat and I was playing in, in the buttery. Um, I was yep. super nervous because I heard all these other oboists play. I was like, oh, well, I'm never getting this. Um, yeah, and there were um, some really good players auditioning that night as well. So goodness knows how you got in. Well, exactly. It must have been my charm. Oh, <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, I uh, auditioned and then, yeah, I say very, very soon after, I think even that night, maybe heard that I got it and then the rest is history. So my first concert, actually, I looked this up today um, and my goodness, when we looked up, I was looking up, I was like, oh my, I've done that many concerts. So I have done 21 concerts with APU and my first concert was um, on 21st of January um, 2012. Um, and that was the Rack Symphony Number no. Two, and also the ten-year anniversary of Young Composers. Um, so variations on summers coming in. So yeah, that's been yeah. That, that, that was, that's, that's been my my first concert, and yeah, so we're we're looking at a good good ten years almost. Good ten years service. I I remember that audition really really well. We gave you a really nasty quick study. Um, yes, from Beethoven Talman. 9, I think it was. Yeah, oh, yeah, that was, as well. Yeah, there, there's some excerpts. So there was that, and then a member of Talman as well. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was, it was all good fun. <laughs> yeah. And so talking about um, auditions and horror stories from auditions reminds me of um, something we've done recently with APO, which we'd, it's just good to talk about what's happened since the last podcast. I can't believe that in the last podcast which we recorded it sort of mid-January. And I didn't mention it at the time because it was just, it was it was something that was just came to being in a very short space of time. And it was just an idea at that stage. But we've had an event called Dress Up to Stay In since the last podcast, which we put on with um, Amelia Conway-Jones from Musicians for Musicians. Um, and one of the things that happened at that event, which we'll talk through a little bit more in a moment, is that after the formal concert of recordings that we put on uh, with special guests and so on, quite a lot of people stayed behind for kind of a virtual pub. And you had this brilliant mixture of professional musicians of the highest standing with us talking about, talking about all sorts of things, including audition nightmares and 
uh, what what goes on in virtual dress up to stay in pub stays in virtual dress up to stay in pub but um, there were some absolutely terrific <laughs> they were terrific stories um, and um, actually Aoife that was kind of your fault that that it all worked out like that because uh, you hooked us up with Amelia didn't you because you know her of old um, well, not really of ours. Um, when I moved to London, I moved in with a friend um, in Ealing, and I we lived in one of those big old um, sort of when they were all still one house, they'd be absolutely colossal, but it was sort of carved up into four flats. Yeah. And um, we lived upstairs. And whenever I would leave for work in the morning, come back in the evening, I would hear either a bit of piano or some outstanding violin playing. I couldn't actually figure out which flat it was coming from, but eventually. I can't even remember how. Oh, it involves someone getting locked out, a train to uh, St Albans, all sorts of stuff. But we, um, myself and my flatmate, ended up getting to know um, Stacey and Amelia downstairs. And what a what a wonderful thing. Um, so Amelia is a professional violinist, and um, her partner Stacey is also um, a musician as well. Um, but yeah, so I can't actually remember. Oh, it's because of the COVID concert. That's why. That's how uh, I introduced yeah. you to Amelia. And then, yeah, it's turned into a fruitful partnership. <laughs> so if anybody doesn't know the story, I saw a tweet from um, the organist and conductor, Anna Lapwood, uh, where she it was a Saturday night and in January and she had a uh, really glamorous new dress that she decided to put on to watch Netflix because as a musician she's not going to get any other chance to wear it for months and months because of Covid and so to make herself feel a bit better she she got herself dressed up um, and then sat and watched the telly uh, and so we I, I immediately appropriated this idea and uh, said well let's let's do it for February the 6th because that's when we would have had a big concert and it's the first time in 15 years we haven't had a big concert either at the end of January or the beginning of February and we were all feeling a little bit down about it in January because January is usually full of APO rehearsal weekends um, and very busy. Um, so I decided um, that obviously it wasn't good enough to have a rest in for one January um, and that I would organise an event. But actually it was totally Amelia's inspiration that made the event what it was. She had some amazing ideas and uh, myself and Chico, who was on the last, last podcast, we worked with her to make it all happen. We had a virtual concert with some incredible guests, people like Stephen Bryant, leader of the BBC Symphony Orchestra, um, and uh, Maxine Kwok from London Symphony Orchestra, uh, all telling us some great stories and what's inspiring them, um, some great artwork as well. It's a fantastic event, and uh, it raised uh, nearly, I think, £1,400 for Musicians for Musicians, which is... Uh, a fundraising effort that Amelia is leading, which goes towards the wider Help Musicians fundraising campaign. So a really good event, a lot of work and um, a, a really interesting adventure. And uh, it went really well on the night, had lots of people turn up. And I think everybody enjoyed it, had loads of pictures of people uh, dressed up to the nines, you know, just getting the sense of having an event to go to, even if it was online. So that was um, that was fantastic. And we've also had the AGM. The annual general meeting. I'm not sure if I'm not. I can't quite remember whether we'd had it or it was just about to happen when we recorded the last podcast. But it um, it has now happened, and uh, there's a couple of things have come out of that. So, Michael, we've got some exciting news today. Do you want to tell yeah. everybody what what you've what you've done? 
Well, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I, what I've done. Um, yeah, exactly. It's one of those things actually. Hopefully, is actually positive rather than negative for a change. Um, but we discussed at the AGM um, about how we wanted to consider buying our own set of, of timpani, um, which which I went when we searched with it with um, great help of our um, percussionist friend Andy. Um, so we uh, researched the idea, got a few quotes in, and today we have placed the order for a full set of four tips, um, which will arrive um, in, th in roughly three to four weeks' time. So we'll be now the proud owners of um, four majestic harmony um, tips with Renaissance heads. I've learned a lot about tips, as you can tell, <laughs> in the last few weeks. So, so yeah, really, really pleased to announce that. Um, so when we do come to play concerts again, we will we will be fully suited and fitted and ready to go. Yeah, I mean it is so exciting because we've had like most orchestras, we beg, borrow, and well not necessarily steal, but we beg and borrow timps and hire so in occasion. Yeah, so, yeah, give, give back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know where you'd, you'd store a load of stolen timps. You'd have to have a, a big old yard or something because they, they do take up a lot of space. And it's worth uh, just giving a bit of a shout out to. Uh, our supporters, Big Yellow store, Self Storage in Reading, who support us with a bit of storage space because uh, we've got a lot of stuff now with the timps coming. We've got a bass drum, bass drum stand. We've got Reading Youth Orchestra's music library in there, other bits of percussion as well. So having that in somebody's house is just unfeasible. So big shout out to them for, for making that happen. And yeah, yeah there's, it's amazing to have at our disposal a set of four timps because it means it opens up a lot more repertoire if we've got that actually and we, we can also obviously lend them and hire them out to other local societies as well so um a really big investment for us yeah absolutely you're completely right i think that shows that you know with with the help of our members donations and of course our patrons which we may come on to later that we're able to do things like this and make an investment um for the players, for the orchestra, for the community, um, and for of course the mission statement of APO. So I think it, I think it's a really, really good thing to do. And it, you know, it's even interesting that the debate we had with, a, with, of course, a PowerPoint presentation, um, at a at a virtual committee meeting. You know, do we do we buy two? Do we buy three? Which three do we buy? You know, and Saul's law would dictate you might you know you you would pick some repertoire, maybe the biggest one or the smallest one. So I think yeah, I think we've made a good decision. Um, taking the bull by the horns, and um, and yeah, we've we've practiced we've practiced fourth. So it kind of begs the question: uh, How on earth did we manage to persuade the treasurer to part with a significant amount of money? Um, and the good news is we've got the treasurer on the podcast. So Aoife, I think first of all, we it's been on the cards for a long time, at least at least a year, if not longer. Um, hmm. So um, I think so I think some sort of investment was on the cards for a while, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, when I took up the role of treasurer, people had already been talking about, and I remembered it from the previous AGM that we'd been talking about tints. Um, and there had been some money earmarked for it, but we just weren't sure what was coming up. And then obviously COVID happened, is happening, and that's changed the game again but it's also given us a chance to and, and probably because there hasn't been a treasurer in post for some time and emily's trying to do a million things at once um 
this has given us a chance to sort of dig into our finances a little bit and you know see what's there and having an AGM where we had a bit more time and we weren't running events right up until the last minute and also an AGM on top of a concert it meant that um, I had and Emily had a little bit more time to sit with the accounts and have a look through and see you know what money's been hanging around since last year and um, slightly com complicated by the fact that we have extra money in there at the moment from the Covid concert but um, APO is still in good financial health and that, that's really great that hasn't changed since last year and, and Covid hasn't you know caused a big hole in our finances because all it's done is sort of things which isn't a huge issue for us so before we go on that it's probably just worth um clarifying for anybody who doesn't know that emily is apo's amazing chair um mm. and the boss basically so in case anybody doesn't know emily it, it, it strikes me that um we we have been in well we're obviously in a strong enough financial position to make this sort of capital investment because it is and it's an asset isn't it that we're getting yeah. in terms of these timpani um but what about the future? Because it, it surely is a difficult time to take over as treasurer um, to sort out all the finances, as you say, for the COVID crowdfunder concert, which has all landed in our accounts. And we have to separate off, obviously, and then pay all the musicians who are going to play in that concert eventually, as discussed during the last podcast. But beyond that, for APO's sort of normal operations, how are we going to work? Because it, it could still be quite some time before we can get the sort of size of audience and the, the revenue from ticket sales that has been the basis of our financial model for some time. So how are we going to cope? Yeah, so, I mean, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty about what a concert's going to look like for us in, well, immediately when we're able to come back and play together and then in six months' time, a year's time, two years' time, it will change quite a lot, I think, from the get-go when we're, we're given the green light to come and play together to potentially a more normal future, whatever the new normal is. Some of the things that could change in the future are obviously the size of our audience, so we might not be able to fit as many people in for safety reasons. Um, we could start with a, you know, a really tiny available ticket sales um, and that will increase in the future, hopefully. But then I, it's also likely that people are going to be a bit nervous about coming back to concerts and, you know, we might also need more space for the orchestra. So there's lots of things to take into consideration in terms of how do we fit people in? It's not going to be the same, you know, pack them in, pack them high that we did before um, within fire safety standards, obviously. Um, so that, that's going to be pretty different. But it's also things like cleaning costs, that, they may go up. Um, concert halls are going to be trying to yeah. recoup some of the money that they've lost over the last year, year and a half, however, however long it is, before we can get back in. Um, the venues that we use for our weekend rehearsals, you know, they may not be available to us as they were before. We may have to pay for them, pay for extra cleaning, that kind of thing. So we don't know the answer to any of this at the moment. So, I mean, this is what we're grappling with at the moment. And this is what we've had to figure out before we decided, yeah, we can go ahead and spend, you know, a bunch of money on tips. So basically the way things have worked up to now is that we ran one or two big concerts in the Great Hall in um, Reading University. And those concerts were generally quite, quite expensive, but we knew that we could bring plenty of people in. They would generally be, you know, big works people wanted to listen to and we'd sell 
you know, good number of tickets, but we might make a loss, but that's okay because we knew that. And then we'd run maybe a smaller concert in St. Joseph's, also in Reading, um, in usually May kind of time, and that would be a cheaper concert for us. Um, it would be a smaller audience, but we generally make quite a good profit, and between those sort of two different types of concert, we could balance things out. Obviously, APO also gets invited to play for different events, and we might make some money from that. But that might not happen anymore. So what we've had to do, and what we said we were going to do at the AGM, and what we've since done, we discussed it at the last committee meeting, is I've built, with some help from Michael, um, I've built a little spreadsheet model, which is going to help us in the future. Um, it doesn't tell us how much stuff is going to cost now, because we don't know, we don't have those numbers. But it will help us when we do know how much stuff is going to cost. Um, we can change all the variables in it, so we can change the number of tickets that we can sell because of the number of audience that we're allowed to fit in. We can change the price of the ticket. We could change the percentage of members who are going to um, make their voluntary contribution to us. We could change the amount of contribution. All those different variables we can then change and we can look at the different scenarios that result from that. So how many people can we or do we need to fit into the hall in order to make a profit? And that's just going to be such a useful tool when we've got a better idea of, of um, what's possible and then things like how much we need to charge for tickets or you know how much should we be advising members that we would expect them to contribute for a, a certain project it doesn't mean that we're never going to do massive projects again absolutely not it just means that we can be better prepared for them and we can take a more long-term view rather than a sort of annual view of our finances yeah and actually, you know, if you think about the way that we've generally modelled the orchestra, we've moved away from taking a view just purely on an annual basis. That's kind of the default that everybody goes to naturally, isn't it? It's a, it's a natural cycle yeah. a year. Uh, and, uh, and obviously, concert seasons tend to follow the, the school year from September through to about June, July. Um, but APO is a project-based orchestra. So we've actually, from a financial perspective, uh, moved away from just thinking purely in years terms we you know we have to break o even over the course of a year so we talk about profit but it's very important as a charity to emphasize that we don't seek to make a profit we just seek to break even or make a bit of money which then enables us to invest in things like timpani or musical development for our players or maybe music education there's a number of th things which are consistent with our um objectives or our objects in our constitution um, to as it says in very old-fashioned language educate the public in the arts and art and science of music um, and it's, it's brilliant <laughs> I, well I, I, I did actually write that uh, you know 18 years ago it was actually based on the constitution of the Reading Phoenix Choir of which my dad was the stage manager and I thought need a constitution to become a charity I know I'll borrow phoenixes and 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 phoenixes was obviously written in the 1960s when everything was ever so much more formal and so on so anyway a little brief history of our constitution there but it's really interesting isn't it to think about we've, we're also thinking about other ways of making music which don't necessarily involve an audience what on earth could I mean apart from recording of course so recording is something that we're looking at as a potential activity but then again we have to fund that because there's no ticket revenue from that so how would we fund that possibly through grant applications uh, possibly through collaboration with um, other uh, organizations or events and so on it is a very uncertain world at the moment 
So, Michael, I think this is a neat way to come on to um, a subject about people who want to show long-term support to APO and have done for a long time, and that's our very highly valued patrons. Now, you are the patrons officer. Is that the right term? Um, yes. In, in so, committee terms? so, technically, I'm the outreach officer and patron manager, Is to give myself <laughs> my full title, um, which actually, I think I've been in the committee for around about five coming on six years believe it or not nothing better to do than um and you know if we if we come on later into reminiscing about you know some favorite moments i think one of the one of the things which makes apo so blooming marvelous um is the people and and the you know and not not to blow the committee doing trumpet but nothing would happen about the committee um and you know everyone does an absolutely fabulous job as you said um, you've mentioned Emily, and we've mentioned many, many other people who have been in the committee during that time. Um, but yeah, so I, I joined, um, first of all, to look after patrons, I guess. So um, we revamped the scheme and almost immediately sort of doubled, even actually tripled the number of patrons that we have. Um, awesome. Which, which, which is really good. And that, that long-term base financial support and income really does make a difference to be able to do all the amazing outreach things and the really unique way in which APO operates I think which is quite different from other amateur orchestras um, not just in the area but I think in, in, in the UK or different ones I was part of back in Northern Ireland um, and without that regular donation support we couldn't do those brilliant things and, you know, it's it's very difficult to keep patrons engaged currently because we're not actually, we're not giving anything back to them. Of course. You know, and yeah. I think that they can they completely understand that. Um, you know, no, no one's been asking for their money back or, or anything like this. But I really hope in the future that we can continue to um, engage our patrons. And I think, you know, even, even just with the COVID concert, for example, lots of people chose to donate that also chose to donate to us as an orchestra um yeah. which which you know i think is um the confidence and the belief in what we do which i think is really reassuring um but if you do want to find a patron um if you even google apo patron scheme um you'll, you'll find it on on the google or um other other such um search engines other search engines are indeed. <laughs> other, I mean, I don't think employed by the BBC, but yes, other search engines indeed are available. I feel like um, you need a number to call. You know, well, indeed. On an well, if you'd be affected by. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by lack of musical variety yeah, in your life, please it, call this number. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, when we, when we do have a standard concert, you know, being um, a member of the patron scheme, um, it can give you um, up to free tickets for your guests to so you can invite people to the concert um, the money also goes towards our concert version scheme you also get a program you can select your seats and just generally obviously have your thanks in the program as well um, also invited to open rehearsals again all those amazing things that we absolutely cannot wait to do and um, when, when we can um, but it's as, as you said, it's, it enables us to do the amazing things that we do, for example, and that includes, you know, buying some tips. Well, I think at the moment, especially over the last year, when we haven't been able to make that little bit of extra cash through concerts like we would normally, we haven't had to stop doing anything altogether. We've been able to put on lots of ed musically educational 
um, events for our members and actually patrons were invited to the Christmas one which Absolutely. was really great but we wouldn't be able to do those things um, over a longer period of time because who knows before you know how long it's going to be before we can put on another concert and make money in a normal way um, we wouldn't be able to put on those things for our members without the support of the patrons so you know it's uh, they're doing such a good thing even now Absolutely, I was going to say that the, the thing obviously we say in the program most of all is a big thank you to our patrons because although there are all those benefits that Michael outlined um, which obviously we haven't been able to fulfill all that well recently because of the lack of concerts many of our patrons just give to the orchestra to support us generally expecting nothing in return except the warm glow of knowing that their money is being well spent on furthering the power of music to move and excite and satisfy uh, people's emotional needs basically so um yeah big up to our patrons i think Absolutely. Now we always end. We always end. We've done one one podcast so far. <laughs> it's this long-standing, long-standing tradition that we end by asking uh, one of our guests. Although both chirped in last time, so Aoife, you're you're very welcome to chirp in too. But I thought I'd go to to Michael as the uh, elder person. <laughs> so I was going to say elder statesman, but there's nothing there's nothing statesman-like about Michael. Oh, I was going to say she reminds me enough that I'm uh, a bit older. Yeah. Yeah, uh, although you're both still younger than me, so let's, let's, let's can that <laughs> talk straight away. In your 10 years of APO, uh, Michael, what is your one outstanding memory? I can only give one. You can only give one. You can't do a Helen Miners and not, say, oh, I'm, I'm three. Really, so so before, I, before I give you my one, I will bore you a little bit with... Um, so in lunch today at work, I, I went on and had what the, the wonderful list of past concerts, and oh my goodness me, did all those memories start flooding back? And it was and I kind of, you know, as Eva mentioned, she sings, I sing as well. We were able to get to a few choir rehearsals, which is brilliant. Um, in between lockdowns, um, but you know, I haven't played over with APO since uh, over a year, over a year ago since the planets, and I kind of forgotten about it. Um, not because I wanted to, just because you know there's, there's other things there's other things going on right now. You know, it, it's it's just one of those things. But my goodness me, when I look back at those concerts, like all the memories and emotions came flooding back. I was like, goodness gracious, I miss this. So as a result, I wrote down <laughs> some of my highlights, which unfortunately is more than one. This isn't highlights, Michael. Um, this is like is, a list. Yeah, no. So um. <laughs> Right, I'll, I will pick, I'll answer your question properly, and um, probably the thing which meant, one of the concerts that meant the most to me actually was January 2014, um, when we did New World, um, Rojak New World, and also we had Glass Camping. Um, but the reason that one stood out so much is because I managed to get nine engineers from work to come down to Reading. Um, into, into the Great Hall, um, not the Great Hall, the Concert Hall, sorry, um, in Reading Town Centre to hear us play. Um, so, you know, everyone was, just bearing in mind we live in Leamington Spa, I work in that sort of area, 
there are people from even sort of towards Birmingham. We, we, I managed to convince nine people to come down to the concert and I absolutely loved it. None of them, a lot of them hadn't even heard fast music before, but I managed to convince them to come all the way down for a night at the promise of a couple of drinks afterwards on me, um, to, to listen to AVO play, um, you know, uh, some absolutely fabulous, fabulous music. And I just, they couldn't believe it. And, you know, a few of them have come back again since. So I think if I had to pick one standout memory, because, um, because, you know, my, my parents aren't in, um, aren't in England, they're in Northern Ireland. So when you, when you have, have a concert, you know, a lot of family and friends um, turn up. But at that time in particular, I was living in Oxford. Um, you know, the, the friends I had in Reading were purely from the orchestra. So to have a lot of support in the audience was, was quite nice, actually, to be honest. Well, that's just lovely, Michael, because it is uh, a very personal thing, our music making and um, a lot of our audience does consist of family and friends who uh, who come and support us and it, it does mean a lot when you see familiar faces in the audience especially when they haven't necessarily experienced the thrill of a live orchestra before I, I'm just looking to remind myself um, of the commission in that concert you mentioned Borminen's Floss Campy which um, one of our violas Cat Hatton was the soloist for and then Vorjak's New World Symphony his Symphony Number no. 9 I think December 2014, I'm frantically checking the website to make sure I get my facts right here. I think that was the year of, yeah, in fact, I definitely remember it because in the pictures you can see me grappling with a laptop and yeah, a, I know a, exactly a headphones. What you're say. <laughs> so this was, this was uh, our Young Composers Award Commission that year was uh, Biscuits, Beer and Bulbs by Michael Betteridge, which was a, an amazing piece. So Aoife, I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard about this piece. It's the only time I've ever had to conduct with to a click track, um, because Mike, the way that Michael composed the motifs for the work was through taking archive speech footage of um, a gentleman who worked at the Huntley and Palmer's biscuit factory, which, if if you don't know, Reading is famous for the three B's: biscuits, beer, and bulbs. Um, and the biscuit factory basically went from the only remaining part of it now, which is by the big Prudential building um, on, on the King's Road, King's Road, I think, yes, um, and ran all the way into basically Newtown. The area of Newtown in Reading was all that was built for the Huntley and Palmer's biscuit factory workers. It was an enormous site. Um, so there was, he, he, he this, this, um, the speech from this gentleman sort of you had a you had a list of things the night before of what you had to do the next day something like that and then from that michael would compose a theme which went not only with the rhythm but also the pitches of the speech so and that sort of got worked around the orchestra the night before of what you want to make sure that bits of audio um, were from Mr. Simmons of Simmons Brewery, hence the beer, 
and of a, an archive. I don't think it was Pathé, but some sort of film like that, which described the view of Sutton Seeds um, outside Reading to the, the east of Reading, which you could see from the train. It's now an industrial park, unfortunately. Um, but uh, that's the bulbs. And this, the, the, the disastrous thing about this performance was that we, we'd worked hard with the brilliant technical staff at the concert hall from Reading Arts to pump the speech through the speakers in the concert hall um, and have the click track play in my ear through one headphone connected to a laptop to my side. So I had to come on, put the headphone in, start conducting to the click track, press, press play, and then start conducting the click track. And for some unknown reason, I turned the volume up on the laptop before from the level that it had been in the rehearsal that we'd agreed and the speech was absolutely deafening yeah, and I kind of <laughs> it's I mean it, it, in a way it's a real shame I, I would love to revisit that piece and um, maybe it's one we could record because uh, I just think it was such an innovative piece Michael even actually provided a uh, hand-drawn sort of map of of the words making the shape of Reading and the rivers and stuff. It was, it's difficult to describe, but it was just remarkable. Um, and as it's such a piece, which is, you know, so um, such a, it's such a wonderful Reading piece. I would love to revisit that again, because I, I felt it was such a shame that I kind of spoiled the performance really. Oh, um, no. It sounds uh, amazing. Well, yeah, yeah. It, was, it, it was great, yeah. And yes, and it was, the Vaughan Williams was amazing. And um, uh, I think probably, uh, I'll say thank you to Michael and Aoife for joining us for the podcast because it seems the ideal way to play out is uh, with a little bit of Forjak's New World Symphony from that night in a recording that I discovered I'd made. Uh, it's only a, a little Zoom microphone from the back of the hall, so it's not great sound quality, but it gives you an idea of some of the excitement we had on the night. So Michael and Aoife, thank you for joining us. And we'll... Um, see you next month on well not we'll see you but we'll see we'll see some more guests from the orchestra next month in march in the meantime here is a bit of forjac's new world symphony to play us out <laughs>